everyone, and welcome back to the fifth episode of the What the Family Studies podcast by Offshia. I'm your co-host, Laura Hadier, and today I will be continuing our conversation with Heather Bamford, a family studies teacher at John Fraser Secondary School, who has been teaching in the Peel Board for 19 years. Heather is also in the role of cross-curricular head of assessment and culturally relevant and responsive pedagogy. And I'm Katherine Murphy. Heather has also been the lead teacher of Family Studies since 2010. She's the chair of the Peel Family Studies Association and is a passionate advocate for our discipline. Heather's taught most of our Family Studies courses at some point in her career, but is truly passionate about teaching fashion, families in Canada, and the introductory Family Studies course. Last time we discussed with Heather the biggest changes to assessment that she has made, how she promotes student well-being through assessment, and the challenges Heather faced in changing her practice. This time, we'd like to talk more about what assessment looks like in Heather's classroom, what she puts on report cards, and how the grade list system has impacted Heather as a teacher. Let's go over our learning goals for this episode. We want to learn more about how to use built-in assessment practices to support student learning. We want to understand how to set up units with gradeless assessment and to gain new ideas about assessment in the area of family studies. Heather, we're all trying to get an idea of what assessment looks like in your classroom. Can you walk us through what a typical day might look like and how you would set up a unit? It's probably easier to start by talking about the unit because that's where I, well, actually I begin with the entire course. So I mentioned before, I map my entire course based on the curriculum. And within that map, I develop a basic assessment plan. It's just an outline and it's subject to change. I constantly add things to it because things, you know, just organically occur within your classroom. But I lay out what assessment for and as opportunities I want to build in and how I'm going to collect the data, whether it's going to be observation, conversation, or a product. And I make sure that it is linked explicitly to my course learning goals and my success criteria. So I know that there is alignment for what I'm doing. And yeah, so the curricular alignment is is probably the most important piece of that. All these opportunities then that I'm collecting the data on student understanding and growth provides students with many opportunities to show what they know in a variety of ways during the learning cycle. And at the end of the learning cycle, I'll have that assessment of piece in order to be able to make a formal judgment on what they've learned. But by the time we get to that, I already have a pretty good idea of what they know because of all of these other opportunities. So I build in these formal or informal assessment opportunities into every single class. And I collect assessment data through tools that I've designed that works for my practice. I'm very tech oriented in my in my department. We have teacher iPad that we've we've purchased as a department. So I use a lot of Google Forms to collect things. I have a you know charts and notebooks for each student that I can add notes into and observations, uh, take pictures of evidence and add it in there. I've even recorded sometimes conversations that they're having that I can go back on. But these are tools that I've designed that, that work for me. So yeah, that's the unit is probably, well, it's actually the course is where I start and within that the units and just breaking down what that skeleton or outline of an assessment plan is going to look like. Within my classroom on a daily basis, you walk into my classroom and my overarching learning goals for all my courses are clearly posted and they're, they're actually stuck to the board with magnets and I, I pull them off and I refer to them and bring them into part of the lesson that we're doing. You know, we're working towards this goal and then we'll share a learning goal that will lead into that. I, I don't call them necessarily learning goals on a daily basis. I look at them as objectives. What is our objective for today or for this series of, of lessons? And then I make sure that I provide a rationale or have my students work with me to develop a rationale to frame the learning about why it's important and relevant to them. So adding in that engagement piece 
in there. In my classroom on a daily basis, where again, I'm engaging with these formal and informal assessment opportunities, assessment for and as. A lot of that will happen as I move around the room. I don't sit much in my classroom. I have a great chair, but I don't sit much in my classroom. But a lot of conversations with students and I can check where they are. I can also regroup students. So Kathy, you're doing a really great job at understanding, you know, concept B, but Laura is struggling with it. Can you move over? Can you two have a conversation instead and maybe share your understanding or where your roadblocks are, your barriers, so I can regroup, just check in. So a lot of that is really informal, but it's happening pretty much constantly on a daily basis. That's really interesting. I, I really like how you get the students to come in and to sort of teach each other. I think that's really impressive. Can you give us an example of a specific assignment that you've used in one of your fashion courses, maybe? Explain how you built an assessment practices to support student learning with that. One of the biggest changes I made when I switched to a more feedback-focused gradeless model was how I approached the sewing tasks. So it used to be everything you sew got marked and there was a judgment, but we're learning basic skills. So we're judging beginners and the grade that they got impacted their final grade, right? Because it was... Mm-hmm. Back then it was pre-growing success. So, you know, you averaged everything, but it doesn't seem really fair to do that to a beginner who's just starting on their journey. And, you know, some of them have never even seen a sewing machine before in person. So now I just do a self-assessment and reflection on all their sewing tasks. So to give an example, we just did some basic seams. My absolute beginners did their plain seams and seam matching. And my more experienced students did some curved seams and corners and things like that. And then they have a set of criteria and they they evaluate their work next to that criteria. Like if they backstitch, they put the right sides together. Did they follow the correct line on the throat plate and so on? And they provide evidence. So they judge whether they've met that criteria, it's emerging or it's not met. And then they provide evidence of it. So they can take pictures, they can type something, it doesn't matter, however they want to show their evidence. And then there's the reflection piece, which is, you know, what, what's going really well for you and where do you need to improve? And then how are you going to work towards that improvement in your next project? So how is this learning that you have, this understanding that you have going to inform the next task that we're doing? So there's that assessment as piece right? So it's, again, though, putting that onus on them. But I take their their reflection and their self-assessment and use that as the evidence of learning. So every sewing task they do, they do these reflections and self-assessments. doesn't matter how small or complicated um, it is or how big. At the end of the course, they pick which of their sewing they want me to evaluate. Okay. So which one are they most proud of? Did they think represents their best work, their greatest area of growth? And we actually evaluate it together as a conference, so they're explaining to me why they've made this choice and, and showing off the elements they want me to pay attention to. And it's been really, really positive because it, it's increased student risk taking. So that's just like, that's the whole course. It really builds on their success and they like it because they have the chance to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to say this wasn't perfect. It's really interesting with my students who've had me for the first time where they've made like they put a right side and a wrong side together and they want to redo the whole thing because, you know, they're going to fail because of this. And I'm like, no, no, this is just as valuable. Take a picture, provide me with the evidence, talk about it. Tell me what you're going to do next. What is what understanding do you have from this? And they're like, really? Yeah, this is this is valuable, right? Because if, if we don't make mistakes, if we don't screw up every once in a while, we're not going to learn. We're not going to grow if we're perfect from the beginning, right? If if yeah. if everything goes well, we're always stagnant. And students really struggle sometimes, I think, with the idea of making mistakes and not wanting to make mistakes and being afraid to make mistakes and 
It's very human to make mistakes, so. It is, and it's, it's, quite, it's quite messy. Like th this type of, of approach to learning is messy and it's okay. Okay, so my grade 12s right now, my, my fashion class, they're doing an inquiry. So they're exploring fashion history and the fashion industry, and they're working to answer the question, individually answer the question, what innovation in textile technology promotion or design has had the greatest impact on the development of the modern fashion industry? So we've been working together. We started as detectives and I put up some historical garments. One was a girdle from the 1940s and the other one were Civil War uniforms. And we we tried to figure out what information we could get. I actually have a 19, late 1940s girdle that I pass around the room, but I don't have Civil War That's uniforms. Cool. And then we looked at what is the lasting impact of this. We co-developed criteria for what constitutes an innovation. And then we watched some shorts presentations about different innovations and we made sure it could fit the criteria and we did this as a class discussion so I'm you know keeping track of okay who's got it who doesn't have it who needs to have more conversations who needs a different resources or a different approach and then we started looking for innovation so we started with the textbook so the whole class skimmed and scanned the textbook and everybody selected one innovation based on our criteria that we'd set and they've put it into a class organizer and a slide and we're going to present them on Monday to the class. But this also allows me to check that they get it mm -hmm. as well as do some of the work together. Because our, our textbook, while it's great, I'm not going to lie, I do love the textbook. It is dated at this point, the World of Fashion book. It has a very Eurocentric approach to fashion. And fashion basically starts at the Middle Ages, really, or it has the Mediterranean, the Greeks and Romans, and then starts at the Middle Ages and ignores the rest of the world or calls it costume right. instead of fashion. So once we've done this as a class, it allows me to check for understanding. They have to find five more innovations from other resources that fit our class criteria. And I'll give feedback on that process. And then at the end of this, they're going to then go through all the innovations their classmates came up with and the five they found and decide which one is the most influential and then create a persuasive product in whatever format they want to convince everybody why they're right. And that's the piece that I evaluate. Everything else up until that point has been assessment. That's very interesting the way you're, you're doing that. So you're not evaluating everything that they do, which is, is totally fine. But I think, you know, a lot of us are really, we're stuck on the numbers, I think. And that's, you know, that's where I'm stuck anyways, right? Because we're coming up right now to midterm reports at this, mm -hmm. this point in time while we're recording this. So what are you going to put on that report card? What number are you going to give to those parents? This is going to sound absolutely horrible. I don't really care about the parents uh, in this <laughs> equation. I teach high school. I care about, I care about my learners that are yeah. the learner that's in front of me. Yeah, a lot of us like numbers. Numbers are, they're neat. They're easy, right? Like you, hmm. you can plug them into a system and it can spit something back at you. And the system I use is not neat at all. It is incredibly messy and scattered and it's challenging, but I find it more rewarding for, for students. Like if we're talking about student success. I find that the system I'm using to be more beneficial compared to what I used to use before in terms of student success. And right now I'm, cause I'm constantly learning, right? I self-described assessment geek. I want to know more and I've been having conversations. I have an incredible teacher at my school in the computer science department, Andrew Seidel, and he just completely blows my mind with what he's doing. So I'm like revising everything right now. Well, one course at a time, because let's not go bonkers. So one of the things that Andrew and I and other people who have gone gradeless have in common is we all have frameworks. 
we've created or developed the frameworks that we can use to root what we're doing, our teaching and learning, and that we can use to collect assessment data and keep track of how students are learning and where they are in their learning. And that's something I found that all of us have in common is some sort of framework. So I use my curriculum map that I've created at the beginning, you know, before I teach a course or sometimes during a course when I'm teaching it, if it's a new one. And I, you know, I, I mentioned before the not met emerging met sort of criteria. So I have all my success criteria there and I'm tracking my students' attainment of them and where they are in their learning. So after we do something, so if we're talking about the sewing, which is progressing and we're looking at is able to use pre-construction instructions, that's terrible, but that's what it is. Like maybe, you know, Kathy, you're really, you've really got that. That's met already, but somebody else in the class that's still emerging, they're not ready to be independent with it, right? They don't understand it. They need a lot of support still. So then how do we move them from the emerging to the met? That'll be what we're focusing on as we move forward. So I'm collecting all this data and I'm tracking where they are. And then I use a tool called a learning map. And the learning map, I learned about them from the incredible Kristen Clark, who was our board coordinator of assessment for many years. And she introduced me to a book called Rethinking Letter Grades. It's a little tiny green book. It's really a quick read. And a learning map presents, so I use my overarching learning goals, which is Peel specific language, but that's the big ideas of my course. And the learning map is a holistic look at what the overarching learning goals look like, what learning looks like at each level. So I take all my assessment data and where they are, and I determine what their learning is looking like at each level. Actually, a lot of times it's the kids who do that. They take all the assessment data and we have a conference and they figure out where they are, not me. So I know what level they are. And then my board has anchor marks. So I use the anchor marks to determine a grade. So at midterm, I often just give the anchor mark, except for a grade 12 second semester, because midterm grade 12 second semester is a whole different ballgame. But usually I just use the anchor mark. And then for final grades, I will start with the anchor mark and then start using professional judgment to move up or down or wherever to come up with a number. And again, a lot of times I'll do this with the students. Right. So it's not just me doing this. It's them. They have input into this. And the neat thing about a learning map is that it's a fluid document. Okay. So it's constantly changing over the course of the semester as we have new evidence, which is it's really cool that way. And all these tools are shared with students at the start of the semester. We refer to them frequently. There is like everything is transparent. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that actually answered the question or no, just we... caused more questions. For me personally, I think it did. I feel like you're onto something here. I feel, I feel like we are stuck in a position where we like to have numbers. It's concrete. We can show exactly where you know, this number came from. But I think with what you're working through, you seem to have all the data in place. A lot of us do worry about, you know, what are the parents or guardians going to say? We want to show the students how we arrived at that number. You're still doing that. You're just doing it a little bit differently than the rest of us. Yeah. One of my goals too, is to help put the onus on the student mm -hmm. to recognize what their next steps are rather than why do I, as the teacher, have all the cognitive load? Right. Let's put this on the students because we, we do. We want students to be lifelong learners. We want them to be expert learners. So, and this is part of that. I, I like it. Now, I'm convinced that this is great for students. How has this impacted you? What difference has this made in, in your world as a teacher? Okay, so this is the conversation I have when I'm trying to convince people. 
to come on this crazy journey with me. And I, I presented off Shia one year about this and I focused it on the marking, like how to mark less. Because I do, I mark, I mark a lot less than I used to when I used to take in everything. It was the endless pile of marking. I had tote bags that would, you know, go for a ride in my car sometimes, but occasionally they made it out to my dining room table. So I, I do, I mark a lot less. That was a significant change. Though I do spend more time giving feedback and initially the feedback was very time consuming because I felt that I had to like give a lot of written feedback. And then I realized the value of verbal feedback in the moment that it's more timely. So again, I don't, I don't sit much in my classroom. It's a lot of walking around and talking to people. So you can give that feedback in the moment or when you're doing something, if a kid's got it, Right. And you know, they've got it, they've met it. And, you know, you don't really have much to say or anything you're going to say is just going to be like, yes, you're doing this really, really well. Um, is sometimes I'll, I'll evaluate it on my phone and I'll just use emojis. <laughs> like when we used to use stickers, I stick a, right. st a star on it. And then I'll provide detailed comments for the students that they need to dig a bit deeper into it or they've missed the mark completely. A lot of times the comments will be asking questions right? Or have you considered this? Trying to activate their thinking skills. And then I give them the opportunity to further expand on what they've done. So yeah, I always invite revision based on feedback because that's actually learning. Right. That's what we're right. in the business of. I'm going to make a bold statement here. I will say that since I shifted my practice, my relationships with my students are much stronger. Mm -hmm. I could see that. Yeah, we have a we have a better rapport. We have a greater sense of trust. They trust me like that things aren't going to tank, that they'll get another opportunity. I was reading something last week and I, I'll probably butcher the numbers, but it's basically like one zero. If a student gets one zero, they need 16 assessments at 85 or higher to compensate for that zero. Right. So they're terrified of getting that bad mark or that failing mark because it does have such a profound impact. It's much easier to maintain a high mark than it is to come back mm -hmm. from a lower from, mark. From the low mark. Yeah, to raise a mark. So yeah, they, they we have a greater trust in, in the classroom, better rapport. I work with a lot of, and many of us do in family studies, I work with a lot of striving students that come with a great deal of academic baggage from their earlier learning. They may or may not have spec ed profiles or BESL or behavior issues or whatever that's haunting them, but they come with all of this baggage and what they believe about themselves as a learner. So if you can also give them this opportunity to be like, no, that, you know, that day that things didn't go well, that's fine. Because you're literally tomorrow is another day and you're going to show me something different. It's powerful. I don't know if they would verbalize it that way, but this is what I observe in them. It's amazing. It, it goes a long way for the mental health of our students, too, which I think is something we need to be concerned about in our classrooms. Oh, yeah. And there's a ton of research surrounding grades and the culture of grades and mental health. Yeah. And it, I think it is a cultural shift that you're working on. So our last question for you in this interview is, what do you hope to see in the future? And how can Ofshia support your vision and get your message out there? <laughs> Big questions. Personally, I strongly, strongly believe we need to have meaningful courses in assessment and evaluation at the Faculty of Education for pre-service and concurrent teacher candidates using current policy and best practices. We are fortunate in our discipline of the people that are teaching at the faculties and teaching our IQs are well-versed in these things, but it's not always the case. A lot of times it is retired teachers, some who have been out of the classroom or out of a school system for quite some time, and they're not up on this or how to engage. Or many of my student teachers have said to me that 
you know, they got an afternoon on it. So they don't really understand what this is, or they're told to read Growing Success and, and make some sense out of it. So I, I do think that we really, really do need to have, we've got two years at the Faculty of Ed now. So there's plenty of time. As for Afshia, Honestly, I think Afshia is is doing a great thing. Like they they're hosting podcasts like this. They run the monthly workshops, which is wonderful. But I don't know if for something like this that as you as you said, it's a cultural shift, right? It's an entire shift in our thinking. I don't know if like a podcast is enough or a one-day workshop is enough. It also it needs to be almost a course. So Afshia can use its position to lobby for that. They have a voice at OCT to talk about things like at the faculty. So I think that would be important too, but also, you know, making sure that they have people who are, you know, passionate about this that are helping deliver that message. Yeah, I just I just think that equitable and transparent assessment and evaluation needs to drive everything we do. And what we've historically done has worked for most, but there's a lot of people who fell through the cracks. And we have a responsibility to those people too, as teachers. So we need to make sure that we're able to support and reach and work towards the success of all of our students. So yeah, I think this is, again, assessment geek, completely biased when I say this, but I do think it's something that we all need to be working on. I couldn't agree more. We're going to send it over to Laura. I'm back with the rapid fire question. So first of all, I want to say amazing conversation. I'm learning so much so early in my career. I'm so passionate about this and it's just been great to listen to all these different ideas and I'm definitely going to check out that book. And I just feel like it promotes so much metacognition for students too to like self-evaluate and reflect on their own learning and teachers aren't always right. Like we are biased too and to promote critical thinking, we have to have students be able to come up with new ideas that maybe we didn't even think of. So before I get into a ramble, (laughs) let's go with our rapid fire question. So first of all, what is your fondest memory of high school? That's a hard one. High school and I did not get along, which is hilarious that I'm a high school teacher. What's my fondest memory of high school? My fondest memory of high school is actually my biology teacher who understood I didn't really care about the science. I cared about the impact of the science on people. And she let me just run with that. So everything I did in OAC biology, she allowed me to relate back to how the science impacted people. So yeah, I guess as far as high school goes in terms of academics, socially, it would be being involved in the swim team for, for many years where I've met some of my closest friends that are still my friends. Awesome. Yeah, I feel like making connections to the course material and like making it more relevant to your life is definitely important. Okay, the strangest thing in your refrigerator. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's pretty empty right now because uh, it's the end of the week. It's strangest thing in my refrigerator. Probably this strange canned yogurt drink that my son got in a birthday party loot bag. We're not familiar with it and nobody in our house has been brave enough to open it and find out what it is. Canned yogurt? It's a canned yogurt drink. Oh. I've never seen it before. It has cute cartoon characters on it and stuff. Uh, also ones I was not familiar with. So it's been sitting there, I think for like a year or two and nobody's been brave oh. enough to open it even to like get rid of it. So okay. it's just like this can that lives in our fridge. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. Interesting. All right. What's the difference between a good teacher and a great teacher? I feel like I already know what you're going to say. Relationships genuine relationships with your students getting to know them on more than a superficial level like i know it's really big in education right now too to to form relationships and stuff but truly finding out 
who your kids are and what they're passionate about and how you can connect to them. It's so meaningful. I agree, for sure. I, I have students in my class who totally do not want to be there, but I'll talk to them about like football or whatever they're interested in, and you can just see them light up because like, wow, someone actually wants to talk to me about something other than school. <laughs> Yeah, we've got it. We focus so much on our content and driving, driving, you know, I've got to get through all of this. But if you just take five, 10 minutes a day, it just changes the dynamic. Exactly. Okay, what is your biggest teaching pet peeve? <laughs> oh, where do I start? My biggest teaching pet peeve? Averaging grades. There you go. Perfect. All right. And what is the most ideal way to spend your weekend? not doing chores. You know what I would love to be able to do this weekend is I would love to just be able to curl up and read a book cover to cover with no interruptions uh, and not have to get out of my pajamas. And then maybe if I felt like moving, uh, head down to the sewing room and create something just for me. I love it. I think, I think teachers have such a different ideal weekend than other people. Yeah, I know. It's not like I don't want to go out and have dinner or anything. No, no. I want to stay home. I want nobody to bug me. I just want, I just I want me time. All right. Well, that's it for the rapid fire questions. Thank you so much for coming. I feel like I'm going to be emailing you so many more questions about assessment. I'm sure people listening will have learned so much and have gained a new perspective that maybe they haven't even thought about. It's awesome. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of What the Family Studies. Join us next time as we interview Gwen Costell, a registered dietitian from Dietitians for Teachers, who will be talking about how educators can talk about food safely in the classroom. All links to resources mentioned during today's episode of What the Family Studies can be found in the show notes. What the Family Studies is brought to you by the Ontario Family Studies Home Economics Educators Association. Special thanks to our producer, Michelin Gallant, tech support and podcast editor, Cassandra McEachern, and our co-hosts, Catherine Murphy and Laura Hattier. <laughs>